and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I'm back from a week's holiday. I'm really excited about the eventing season having started. It really made my day on Monday this week to be able to have a good trawl through all the results from the, the events that happened last weekend. It's really great to be back with that sport. Our interview this week is with the legendary former jump jockey Barry Geraghty, looking ahead to next week's Cheltenham Festival. He talks about the pressure of riding at this event, which is the highlight of the jump racing calendar. On a personal level for any jockey riding, they want, they want success. And this success means more than any other winner. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the intensity is different. I'll be chatting to our news team about the staff crisis in the horse industry how research into horse vision is making racing and eventing safer, and the initial outcome of an investigation into last year's equine herpes outbreak in Europe. Finally, hunting vet Helen Van Tool is back to give us some timely advice on roughing horses off as the hunting season comes to an end. There's a lot of different techniques to turning our horses out for a well-earned break over the summer. I think the uh, slightly older fashion may be just pull off the rugs at the end of March and stick it in the field. More from Helen later. For now, zip up your boots and let's get started. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, racing editor at Horse and Hound. And as all roads lead to Cheltenham next week for the much anticipated four day festival, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the most successful jockeys of all time with an outstanding 43 Cheltenham Festival winners to his name, including the big four, the Gold Cup, the Champion Chase, the Champion Hurdle and the Stairs Hurdle. He retired from the sport in 2020 after riding nearly 2000 winners. It's the one and only Barry Geraghty. Barry, welcome to this week's podcast. Hey, Jennifer. Um, well, Barry, I think everyone in racing loves this time of year with the Cheltenham Festival fast approaching. Are you as excited as the rest of us at the prospect of uh, four days of top class jump racing? Oh, definitely. No, I really am. And, you know, I'm, in, I'm just I'm in a different place from where I would have been a few years ago when I was riding. Sure. It's, it's as a spectator and it's uh, and it goes back to, it's, you know, obviously you enjoy racing, but the clash with Shishkin and Anorgamin. Oh, yeah. I, I had this you know, nervous excitement as a spectator <laughs> that I can't say I've had in the past before because when you're when you're involved you are you're looking at, at these races and you're trying to weigh up, find weaknesses for when you face them. So you've you're you're analysing it from a different place. Um where this year as a spectator I am oh I'm so excited in a, in a completely <laughs> different way. Um yeah. from when I was going there riding with fancy rides, there's more expectation, there's more you know, there's a level of, of, of anxiety, there's there's a nervous tension, you know, there's pressure, there's, there is stress, there's everything. And as a jockey, you don't recognise them because yeah. this is how you are. <laughs> you're in but, that bubble. But... Exactly. But now as a spectator, you're, you're, you're breezing in and looking forward to the clashes. And if the clashes, the results come up different to what you're expecting, you can just save at the moment and say what a performance that was or, or what it, it's yeah so it's 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 a very different place <laughs> and i'm guessing there might be a bit of mixed emotions not going into the weighing room on tuesday morning will there um i, I can't say that will no it's, it's 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 just very different um i suppose having not been there last year i've had uh, a two-year detox from right. the <laughs> festival last year albeit it wouldn't have been hard on a personal level because I was happy with the decision I'd made, but I know if I had to justify that decision to 
20 people on a day, I'm sure the 20th person <laughs> would go away thinking, he's not so happy you're retired now because yeah. your answers would get shorter. But um, yeah, that's in a very, very different place. Now, I don't, I won't need to justify it. And it's, it's very relaxed. But no, I've been to, I was at the November meeting, I was the October meeting, I was there on trials day. And to walk around and, you know, visit stands and, and different areas of the race course that yeah. I'd never been to. I bet. <laughs> and watch a racing. Yeah, watch, watch racing from the owners and trainers bar. And I was in the Royal Box watching a race. It's, yeah, so it, it's, it's just... It's, <laughs> it has its, its perks. <laughs> it does, but you're, you're, you're experiencing racing in a, from a very, very different place from how it's been for 20 plus years. So it's, uh, yeah. no, I'm looking forward to that. And I mean, is riding a race at the festival totally different? I mean, is it is it 10 times faster? Does the open ditch feel 10 times wider as well? At the festival versus a normal meeting? Um, um, it doesn't in that sense, but it's the, the, the tension level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the pressure. It's the demands. It's, it's more intense. 30 runner handicaps or 25 runner handicaps, you know, they're, they're position is so hard to get it's it's tighter it's just more it's it's more and more competitive because this is what the whole season's about and you know there's 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 yeah there's a lot at stake um on a personal level for any jockey riding because they want they want success yeah and this success means more than any other winner so it's it's yeah it's it's the intensity is different i can um, imagine so, yeah, yeah. And is there any sort of chat, any banter out on the race course when you're you're in the race, or do you very much keep your hands close to your chest? Um, at different in different situations, when you've had a winner, um, you then will relax a little bit more because you have a score on the board. You can take a breath. You can enjoy it a little bit more. Um, but if you're on a keen going horse, you're not going to be having a conversation with the fellow behind you. Yeah. If you're <laughs> out the back going nowhere with no chance you can yeah. be having a conversation if you're feeling very relaxed and you're on a nice relaxed horse you might mention a word but you're so focused on what you're doing because anything can happen and it's to expect the unexpected of but course. if you're not if you're not fully focused on what you're doing you won't be prepared to make that instant decision which could be left right up down pull push anything so it's uh, you, you work on instincts and, and Cheltenham to me is a real it's really an instinct track mm-hmm. because it's so challenging and so different you're, you're working off instinct decisions are instant wow. and if you're if you aren't you know not in the zone but if you're not fully focused on everything that's happening around you you won't get those instinctive decisions right Sure, exactly. Um, and are you sort of conscious of the, the noise? Do you hear the Cheltenham roar? Do you hear the, the noises you're galloping up the hill or do you just block everything out, as you say? Um, same thing, different times, different scenarios. Um, when you're winning easy, yeah. you, have, you can take it in, land over the last. All you have to do is keep them straight, push and push. Then you get about 70 yards in the line you can maybe decide to stand up and salute then because it's in the back you're taking it in if you're yeah. on a ding dong finish and you win a short head you don't even know the crowd is there until you've crossed the line oh and my goodness obviously if, if it's a photo finish you're still not know they're there oh no <laughs> but if you're up and you know you're up in a tight finish that's a there's a yeah the the the, the decibel level from two strides before the line to two strides after the line it just goes through the roof 
I can imagine. I'm being part of that crowd on many occasions. Yeah, I mean, it's just deafening. So I can't even imagine what it's like when it's when it's for you as well. It's just uh, amazing. Um, and I'm guessing the festival has always been a huge part of your life. What are your sort of first memories of Cheltenham? Did you gather around as a family and watch it on TV? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. From from a young age, I can't say I'm I'm old enough to. I was around for Don Run, but I would have been six and a half at the time. Um, our son here, he's six and a half. I can't imagine he will be as tuned into Cheltenham either. So I can, right. I was a spectator, but probably not realizing what was happening. Um, yeah. I'd suppose uh, Desert Orchid beating Yahoo would be my earliest memory. Would have been eight and a half. So that would be from there on Norton's coin races like that. So it, uh-huh. and then you get into the nineties, Easter Brack and. Yeah, so it's it. Yeah, I've been very much aware of Cheltenham all my life, um, and even I suppose my grandfather bred Golden Miller, which was always a brilliant connection as a child. Amazing. Um, so he won five gold cups, um, and so it, it always Cheltenham was a very very, was a long way away from us as kids growing up on a farm, but we had this connection which it made it feel to some some level it felt real. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And can you remember your first visit to Cheltenham? Did you come before you ever rode there or was riding in the festival your first time? Yeah, my, my first uh, my first festival was as a jockey in 98, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was 98. I was fifth in the car learning. That was my first taste of Cheltenham and I was hooked. Oh, was it? I mean, what was the buzz? I mean, even finishing fifth, did that sort of set you off for the, the rest of your career? It did. Well, it, it definitely was. Uh, Fran Berry won it on Carawani for JP and Christy Roach. Um, and uh, myself and Fran would have grown up together, started at the same time, we'd have been very close. So it was a brilliant success for him. I finished fifth, probably beaten 10 lengths, but had a perfect run round. No hard luck story. Felt I got the best out of the filly I was riding. So, um, but got a taste of what it could be, what it would feel like. And yeah, so like that's 20 four years ago and I remember that well. <laughs> oh amazing and I mean even walking into the the Cheltenham weighing room you must have been surrounded by your heroes growing up I mean that must have been an experience in itself was it? Oh definitely definitely yeah Richard Dunwoody and Graham Bradley and you know all the big names and you have the Irish jockeys over Charlie Swan, Conor O'Dwyer you know jockeys you're familiar with but the English jockeys albeit I would have ridden in England but at Cheltenham the atmosphere is different um you know, the tension levels, AP would have been there, Mick Fitz, Norman Williamson, you know, brilliant right. jockeys and who'd had brilliant careers and success and yeah, just, just taking it all in, I suppose. Yeah. And your first winner was um, the brilliant Moscow Flyer, who you and I have talked about uh, quite a lot recently because we're doing a piece about him in our Legends series. But um, tell us about that first win. I mean, you had utter belief in that horse, didn't you? I did. Yeah. And I suppose that was the beauty of, of youth innocence and and not seeing the downside but moscow had a had a bit of a um he had a strange relationship with fences especially in the early days he he was he'd fell first time then he won three then he fell then he won three and he fell so he'd, he'd win three and then fall or unseat so um thankfully when he went to challenge with the arc it was in the he'd fallen on his previous run so he was due oh, to win yeah. his next three yeah he, he was uh yeah he was he he, he drifted out on the market seaball was favorite um but no, I couldn't. I couldn't see anything of the opposition that was as good as him. Mm-hmm. He just had so much quality. But jumping was his 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 weakness, I suppose, at the time. So, but he jumped brilliantly on the day. Um, and Jesse, it was a brave call to go there on the back of a fall. 
um, but Jesse was never afraid to make a big call like that. So um, he jumped brilliant on the day, took a chance at the ditch, but that could have been as much my fault as his. We met it on a crazy long stride and I went for it and possibly <laughs> should have went for a show. But thankfully we got there. Yeah. Apart from that, he was foot perfect um, and he won really well. And, you know, jumped the last. I had time to take in the roar halfway from the last of the line and could had the luxury of saluting the crowd before I got to the line so it's, <laughs> it was a it was a comfortable win and but, oh. but brilliant to win one of the you know one of the great ones and, and a race with such history for your first winner to be one of those any winner in Cheltenham is brilliant but but to break your duck in a in a in a race like the Arkham at the time was magical fantastic and I mean he went on to so many other successes but yeah two of them were at Cheltenham weren't they the two more champion chases with him I mean he was just fantastic horse for you and your career wasn't he definitely yeah I was I was lucky to to get him when I was I think it was 20 when I rode him first so I had my first Cheltenham winner I was 23 um in Moscow and came back he won the champion chase the following year uh which was brilliant that was my first uh, taste of success in one of the feature races um, oh, yes. and like that as well he, he did it really well uh, there's a couple of followers at the second last we managed to avoid, avoid them and Moscow did his usual win by two or three lengths with his ears pricked so he was <laughs> yeah. he was dossing in front um, so that was that was an amazing day we came back 12 months later and uh, he stuck his legs into the ditch at the oh, fourth gosh. last and sent me flying but oh. uh, he would put the record straight then 12 months after that again 2005 when he, when he got his championship back Amazing, just fantastic horse and just a great to watch. But yeah, always sort of heart in your mouth uh, moments with him as well. He was he was amazing. I think one of my favourite quotes from Jesse was saying that uh, when you came over to the yard, she said, um, Barry never schooled Moscow, Moscow always schooled Barry. It sort of summed him up. He sort of had a mind of his own, didn't he, sometimes? Very much so. You couldn't predict what he would do. Um, <laughs> his concentration levels were poor. Like he was brilliant. <laughs> he, he naturally was good over fence wasn't the biggest horse so it was probably more of an effort for him and he wasn't afraid of taking a chance I suppose and you need that in a good two mile chase but a smaller horse um maybe 16-1 I suppose um but a smaller horse really needs to be up for it and willing to take a chance where Sprinter Sacra always had the luxury of size and scope he could do what he wanted over a fence or Moscow you were you were dipping a little bit looking for an extra bit of times jumping um, and he could decide to give it or not. So it was, yeah. it was, it was just hard to predict. Um, and you mentioned Sprinter Sacra there. I mean, your extensive list of other Cheltenham winners includes the likes of him and Kicking King and Bobsworth. And I mean, I know it's an impossible question, but which ones bring back the best memories? Which ones meant the most to you? Uh, do you know, they all did. And that's, that's not ducking the answer, but they really did. And they all came at different times. Um, Moscow and Kicking King were together since 2005. The champion chase and and the gold cup as a double like that was that was an amazing week um and then go back then was with sprinter sacra and his arkle chase um you know the buzz about him that year because he was the next big thing and you know the the arkle only being the second race it's this is i mean we're going out to the start thinking this is it like this is our challenge just started and we're here already yeah. in this the major moment um, wow. yeah so that was magic and he was brilliant on the day and then you know you bobs were to finian's rainbow and lots of great horses and um, simon sig so oh yeah yeah, yeah there's, there's there's too many and 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 all of them really were because every any winner in Cheltenham, you go there hoping for one and when you get one you can consider a second but if it's 
you know, any winner, any winner. So they are really all special. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I mean, you rode for some great trainers and owners during the time as well. I mean, people like Nicky Henderson supporting you and providing you with great opportunities and great horses as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, I, I had great support over the years. Jessica Harrington, as we mentioned, Tom Taff, Edward O'Grady, and then when I had Nicky for a good few years and then on to JP, when all brilliant, was lucky to have so many great horses along the years and champion hurdles and champion chase and gold cups and stairs hurdles and... Um, even then you have John Joe, I rode winners for John Joe as well, oh, which yeah. I always loved riding for John Joe and Christy Roach, I rode Cheltenham winners for, you know, brilliant people, brilliant horsemen um, and just, just, yeah, they're always good fun, especially. Yeah. And is winning the Gold Cup the ultimate or does every sort of championship race mean as much? I think, well, the Gold Cup is end of the week. It's the big one on the Friday it's yeah. the finale um, and yeah so they, they are as I say they are all special but the Gold Cup is that's the monster for the week and if yeah. you get that that is <laughs> that's yeah, a good you, one you've you bagged the big one <laughs> I mean, are there any Cheltenham trophies you didn't manage to get your hands on and wish you had or are you pretty satisfied with your with your haul over the years I know I, I'm, I'm very satisfied with me with, with my lot um, I suppose I never won a supreme novice that's probably the oh, yeah. the only one of the, the, the good novices but uh, it's not one that uh, that really keeps me awake at night or anything like that but uh, no I, I was very lucky over the years to, to win as I say so many great races and great horses and were there any horses that you thought should have won there but actually didn't sort of the ones that got away yeah well, I'm and it was probably the biggest learning curve for me was in 99, I jumped the last in the Carl Hurdle on a horse called Native Dara. It was probably three lengths clear. And what's up, boys? I think he was 11th jumping the last. And he beat me a neck. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, I was. So I was, I was 19 or 20 at the time. Oh, no. I was absolutely flattened. Flattened by that. But I learned so much from it. So it, it cost me that race, but I know it won me so many more. Yeah. Um, so he was one who got away. Um, I suppose if there was ones I was to do again, Iris's gift his first day I was hurling in two thousand and three. I felt I, I felt I waited a bit too long. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got we got revenge the following year. He, he yeah. Barracuda the following year. Um, and maybe Yanmort in the Neptune, in two thousand and sixteen, I think it was, uh, against York Hill. I just got trapped wide, and there was a lot of things went wrong on the day for me. Um. Oh. Whether he'd have beaten Yorkel or not, I can't be certain, but I just felt he wasn't put in the best place to beat him. So they're probably the ones I wouldn't mind having another go at. Um, yeah. But I suppose I was, I was, as I say, you learn from these defeats. And, and Native Dara's defeat, that was, I'd say, the biggest uh, lesson in racing that I ever got. And, wow. you know, especially in Chelsea, just to respect that hill and don't yeah. be in a rush to take it up. Gosh, yeah. And these things you, you do learn as a as you go it only comes with experience don't they so uh, and uh, any other sort of great races from over the years that you weren't involved in but you can remember well any sort of big names that stand out for you actually you'd have to say Carlos Starr and, and Denman and Long Run and you know the brilliant races um, Isterbrack I would have been there at the tail end of his career and to see him win his his, his, his three champion hurdles like there they were superstars. Um, yeah. I was fortunate enough. Sprinter was probably the other big one, and I was lucky enough to have had him. So, um, yeah, I suppose what, what Cotto Starr did re- retaining his Gold Cup, which hadn't been done before, that was. Yeah. Yeah. You have to give that horse great credit. He was he was something special to be so competitive over two, and to step up to three, 
and then in the King George and then to win a gold cup at three and a quarter that that's ticking boxes that that don't get ticked too often yeah um and equally are there any which sort of jockeys have you most admired in your time at the Cheltenham festival or which sort of jockeys do you think really come to their own in um at festival time yeah there, which, there's been lots over the years and I suppose as a kid you're, you're looking up at the at the superstars and you know Charlie Swan was always brilliant in Cheltenham and Norman Williamson the same um AP his drive we saw it all was over the years was was brilliant too and yeah. I, I suppose then through my own career Paul Carberry Ruby Walsh and the three of us would have sat in the same corner in the way room and we oh, probably yeah. fed off each other um and dealt with the pressure we were always there to pull each other aside and, and straighten each other out so I'd say the three of us fed off each other a lot um and I'd say we we without knowing it at the time we were probably a big help to each other yeah we were trying to beat each other yeah <laughs> um and finally just looking ahead to this year's festival then uh, which races are you most excited about watching oh, there's so many there really is and mm-hmm. as I said earlier as a spectator it's so different um for me now and so I'm really I'm really excited and looking forward to it but everything it's it's day by day and and I suppose I tasted it as a spectator when I was injured in 2017 I think it was oh yeah um and it's it's a it's each day is so big mm-hmm. I know it's harder when you're looking on being injured because you want to be there but uh to be there as a spectator I'm really looking forward to it. but no there is so many like you've the supreme so competitive likewise the Arkle. I think the champion hurdle is getting more and more competitive with appreciated Tia mm-hmm. Poo then you move on to the champion chase Shishkin and Rogamin Shakan Prosua you know the novice hurdles novice chases stairs hurdle competitive gold cup wide open it's just it's 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 a chock block week so um <laughs> no I'm just I'm really looking forward to all that I really am oh brilliant and any horses that could tempt you out of retirement is there one that you thought right I would love to be on that one for the race um, well, the championship races, the, the, the feature races are the obvious ones, and you'd, you'd love to ride the winner of one of those. But I suppose if there's one individual horse that would excite me, it's probably Galloping the Champ. He just oh, yeah. he oozes so much class. So I, I think uh, Galloping the Champ and next year's Gold Cup, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for that for me uh, coming out of retirement. <laughs> um, and then any sort of up and coming trainers or jockeys you think might have their moment in the spotlight this year? Yeah, well, there's plenty of. Um, you know, good jockeys. As I say, young John Joe, I'm a big fan of his, so I'd love oh, to yeah. see him have a good week. Harry mm-hmm. Cobden has been there and he's had success, but he's a brilliant rider too. So yeah. um, lots of good young talent coming along and plenty of senior riders who are well able to fight that corner still. Um, of the trainers, you know, Neil Mulholland is a very good trainer. I, I had a winner from years back, but he's he, the quality of his horses is improving. Um, you know, and you have the Irish trainers too, then obviously Henry Gordon and and everything it's 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 harder for the younger trainers to break through and and this is their this is their chance um so it'll be interesting to see and it's it's a test of their own ability to get the best out of their horse uh on this meeting and, and to deal with the pressure especially on the build-up so it, it's i suppose it's the meeting that really sets sets them apart from from the potential to the superstar and you touched there on the Irish. I mean, it's been debated so much recently about the Irish dominance. Um, do you think the tide will be turned at some point? Do you think it will continue to the same extent this year? Um, I think it'll continue to some extent, maybe not the same extent. I think England is a little bit stronger this year than it was last year. Um, mm. I think the English handicaps have been a little bit more competitive 
than they were last year and you know it's it's the, the they compare the Irish handicappers and the English handicappers and say the Irish ones are um being treated better than they should be but to me it's because the handicaps in Ireland are so competitive that right. the horses that are placed in Ireland in big handicaps and don't have a penalty they're the ones that are the likely winners where the, for me the English handicaps haven't been as strong in recent years mm-hmm. um the Ladbrokes Trophy, for example, you know, you have a strung out finish instead of having seven or eight horses jump on the second or third last with chances, you know, they're strung out like the washing. So there is there is some strength and depth in handicaps like that. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's where the 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 fall, the English are falling short in quality in that department. And obviously it, it's it's back to buying power as well. Yeah. Um in these big grey one races. You know, you see the big owners and the big trainers and the seem to be Irish based that are buying the majority of the top lots and that's what I mentioned Neil Mulholland bought a bought one for a fancy price at Cheltenham recently so hopefully that can turn into a potential star so it's it goes back to buying power really and, and buying the right type of horse and um, Pied Piper of a Boon were both there for anyone to buy but they were sourced and purchased by the right people so it's it's I think if you want to up your game you just have to up your game well, the excitement levels are certainly building and I can't wait to hear that Cheltenham roar. Barry, thank you for joining us this week. It's been great to chat to you. Cheers, Jennifer. Thank you. So I'm joined today by all three members of our news team. First of all, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hi, Eleanor. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. Had a, an interesting week. I went to the, the National Equine Forum uh, last week, which is always interesting and always has really good lunch. And um, that was, uh, we'll be talking about some of that in a minute. But also, the, I think the highlight of the day was winning a big bar of chocolate for winning the horsey quiz at the beginning of the day. Oh, well done you. A good lunch <laughs> and a good bar of chocolate. See, that's the Happy kind of thing days. you just don't get when you go to forums virtually, isn't it? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> well, well done you. We also have with us our senior news writer, Lee Lucy Elder. Hi Lucy, how's it going? Really good, thank you Pippa. I've been out um, commentating this weekend, the first week of the season, or first day of the eventing season, so that was really lovely. Very good lunch as well there, Eleanor, so um, (laughs) and plenty of cake. (laughs) You were at Poplar Park, weren't you Lucy? I was at Poplar Park and it was, I mean, what a way to start the eventing season, I mean, fantastic event, but the open intermediate section there, my goodness me, what a, what a rundown of horses from, you know, All Star B, Ballamore Class, um, Arctic Soul. It was just, I mean, every everyone coming through. It was, um, I felt really lucky to be, really lucky to be there as well. Um, plus, just great to see lots of people and lots of horses and riders out having a having a lovely time. Mm, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to getting out to an event soon after, as you say, seeing seeing posts on social media about it last weekend, saw you in the commentary box. So yeah, looking forward to that in a few weeks time, hopefully. We also have with us our senior news writer, Becky Murray. How are things with you, Becky? Good. I had an exciting weekend too. I uh, finally bought a towing vehicle and a trailer, which I haven't had transport for years. So I'm delighted. I talked my long-suffering non-horsey fiancé into selling our car and I think rather than listen to me complain all summer, he agreed. So, um, <laughs> But that said, uh, we won't talk about the fact the same day I bought the trailer, my horse injured herself and is currently lame. So, you know, that's horses for you, keeping you balanced. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I hope she's going to get better soon so we can get her in the trailer and go somewhere. 
And how are you, Pippa? I am good, thank you, Becky. I was away last week, as uh, regular listeners of the podcast will know, because I abandoned uh, abandoned you all. But um, yeah, I was skiing, and it was excellent. We had a very sunny week. Obviously, it's been two years since I was last skiing with COVID last winter, and it was great to be back. So yeah, really enjoyed that. It was brilliant. Oh, Brill. Came back feeling quite refreshed, which is really nice. So, raring to go now for the eventing season and really getting going with sports soon, I hope. Well, let's talk about some of the serious news from this week. Eleanor, you mentioned the National Equine Forum. We are going to talk about that. Staff and employers has been a theme of your week at the National Equine Forum and elsewhere. It's it's something that came up on the podcast a couple of weeks ago because Jay Hallam spoke about it in his interview. And I think it was actually in response to Jay that a groom got in touch with you and gave an interview which you wrote up for our website. Tell us about that. What did she say, Eleanor? Yeah, so if people were listening uh, to Jay's interview, they'll have heard him saying he struggles to find people. And sometimes uh, in his experience, people come and they don't necessarily understand what the job involves. Um, but the groom we spoke to said, well, from her, uh, you know, that was Jay's experience, said in her experience, you know, she spent years uh, working for an event yard where she was working weeks of over 70 hours for 200 pounds a week. Um, never, She was never on the books. She never had regular days off holiday pay a contract or any of the other things that are actually required by law um, and she, although she did get accommodation she had to pay some bills and for her horses hay bedding and feed and there were days where you know she she would get up at half past two in the morning to go to an event and didn't get back till 10 o'clock at night and, and never got that time back or overtime um, and she said you know she then went into a racing job and for the last sort of 18 months has been paid more like £450 a week, plus her overtime, plus about 15 fewer hours worked and, and days off and contracts and, and all the legal stuff. And she basically said, well, it's no wonder some yards can't get staff if that's how people are treated. And just to be very clear there, she wasn't responding no. specifically. So that's why Jay can't get staff. She was talking about that as a general a general point across the equine industry. So then moving on to the National Equine Forum, the sustainable workforce was a, a big topic. And the British Horse Society has run a couple of surveys, which their CEO, James Hicks, spoke about, I think, at the forum. What did he say about that, Eleanor? Yeah, so he sort of chaired a panel discussion and spoke at the forum and he said that the British Horse Society ran a survey just very recently in the last few weeks and they heard back from 170 employers who found that, um, who said that more than half the vacancies they'd advertised in the last year, and this is offering an average salary of about 24 grand, um, had gone unfilled. And then they did a second survey of people working in the industry and they heard back from 160 people who, and they were asking what they were looking for in an employer and there was a mismatch. So uh, James Hicks said the employers were, were looking for, for, you know, industry experience, long hours, it's hard physical work, but the workers were looking for personal development, maybe flexible hours. And, and he said one thing that came through was that often the work-life balance is more important than how much people are paid. But he said the biggest thing was people are looking for good employers. Hmm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because mm. there are some things which are sort of implicit in working with horses, which are that it is going to be hard physical work and horses need a lot of care. But obviously that has to be, as you say, matched up with work-life balance and, and, and treating staff properly. So all lots of things in the balance there. What other information and views came out at the forum? 
So one thing that came out from the British Horse Society is that they're, uh, they're launching this um, career transition fund, which is funding for people who have taken their stage one or two to get their two or three. So that's for training. Um, they hope that will help. We also heard from Lucy Catan, who's the executive director of the British Grooms Association and Equestrian Employers Association, saying they'd done a survey about the minimum wage increases that are due to come in next month. And there is real concern about business viability once these rate, uh, wage increases come into play. So she was saying, you know, and she's concerned that there will be an increase in bad employment, but that also, you know, people have to maybe think about how they run yards to be more business focused and, and maybe things like does everyone need to come in at seven o'clock every morning or could there be rotors so grooms are working you know an acceptable number of hours for the right money without working 12 hour days. Mm. Okay, it sounds interesting. And there's more about that from Eleanor and that forum in this week's magazine. Becky, you have been looking at a report into the EHV1 outbreak, equine herpes, that occurred last year. It brought horse sport to a halt across Europe. We talked about it a few times on the podcast, and it was a bit of a perfect storm with uh, Brexit, coronavirus and EHV1. Can you start by just reminding us what happened in that outbreak? Yes, um, goodness, it's strange to think a whole year has passed. Um, this outbreak started in February last year when horses who'd been competing on the show jumping tour at CES of Valencia in Spain returned uh, to their home countries and tested positive for EHV1. Now, this quickly spread. Lots of horses who were actually still at the venue did become very ill. There were cases reported in 10 European countries and some some of the other Spanish show jumping tours and like you say horse sport was shut down um, for six weeks and this included the cancellation of the World Cup finals. Now this really was an awful outbreak and described at the time um, as the worst in decades by the FEI and ultimately 18 horses died. And this report that's been published now what is what is that? Well, while the outbreak was going on, there was lots of concerns raised about the general handling of it and the communication. And ultimately, the FEI said it was going to fully investigate everything and provide this public report on the findings. Okay, it's a three part report that's coming out. Is that right? And this is the first part? Yes, that's right. As you can imagine, the investigation covers a lot. Um, So there's two reports still to come. Now, this report covers the full timeline of events and an analysis of how it all evolved and where things perhaps were not handled as they should have been. Um, Some of the major things to come out of this first report was when the FBI was officially notified about the ill horses at Valencia, Um, on the 20th of February, it turned out that a horse had actually left almost a week before and tested positive for EHV in France. And despite this, no action was taken. And now another major point is the FBI did tell the show organisers in Valencia to stop the competition immediately on the 20th of February. But the next day, competition continued and a Grand Prix actually started at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, competition was eventually halted after the FEI threatened disciplinary action. And then that day, 131 horses left the venue and the report states these horses left without the required health papers and returned home to their home countries. Gosh. And what are sort of the conclusions being drawn in that report? 
Well, the report said it's not possible to pinpoint a single reason or person responsible for the outbreak, but it has concluded mistakes were made, um, human error. There was a lot, um, there was a lack of compliance with regulations, there was a lack of cooperation, and the report said poor decision making. Now, it does seem the mistakes were made from a number of parties. The FBI does say it should have requested permission from the Spanish authorities to allow additional vets on sooner. And everyone has to take their share of the responsibility. We are waiting now to see if any action will be taken against any individuals. And of course, we have the other two reports to come and they will be covering sort of the return to sport protocols and bylaws that have been brought in and look at the way forward in terms of vaccination. Mm, so hopefully that some good can come out of this in terms of uh, any future outbreaks being handled better, I guess, is the uh, the aim of the game. Thank you, Becky. Lucy, you have been writing about the colour of fences in racing. I think this is a really interesting one. What is the background to this? I think it's really interesting too, Pippa. And I think anyone that's ever sat on a horse, or pointed a horse at a jump or, you know, ridden a horse is always wondering uh, what are they seeing you know when they look at things out hacking or in school or or when you're jumping so the background to this is it follows some research by Exeter University which was commissioned by the British Horse Racing Authority um, with backing from the Racing Foundation into equine vision so horses see colour differently to humans and that means they mainly see hues we would consider sort of blue and yellow and they're also unable to tell apart shades of red green and orange now anyone if you look at a national hunt fence or a hurdle um, you'll know that they've got those orange markers on them uh, for, for the ground line and the kickboard which as a, as a rider as a jockey it, anyone looking at them you think oh that's quite a quite definition but when you take into account how a horse sees that it doesn't have the same definition that we would see so they found that changing the wood and vinyl padding takeoff boards the guardrails and the top boards to white increase contrast and visibility to horses which lead to improved jumping performance uh, they also found that fluorescent yellow had a similar effect but again the color faded rapidly in tests so it was something that needed needed to be practical as well as providing that contrast so research involved analyzing 131 obstacles at 11 race courses and they have this amazing amazing bit of kit really sort of an app sort of footage if you have a look on our website actually it's covered on there and you can see the sort of side by side of what horse sees and what human sees and they tested that to determine which colors would be most visible to a horse once they'd identified that they then tested that with 14 horses uh, in a training yard in Gloucestershire and it sounds very interesting as we were saying and the upshot is that all national hunt courses are going to be changing their fences and painting them white in a pretty short time frame. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that is right, Pippa. So all this research is all well and good, but this is the really interesting part is that it's now been all followed through and we are by the end of the year, I think by December, all 40 jump courses in Britain will have changed their markers um, from orange to white. Uh, point to point courses are also going to follow in the 2022 and 2023 season. So it's part of this change it comes under the horse welfare board's life well lived strategic plan and getting the results of this if excuse the pun uh, over the line was one of the aims of that plan um led by mike etherington smith who many in the sport horse world will know from eventing as the as a leading course designer among his other roles uh, now he's the equine safety advisor to that horse welfare board and this was one of the first projects he was tasked with seeing through 
Mm, and I was going to ask about that because the research interrelates with sort of similar research and knowledge about how horses see cross-country fences in the eventing sphere. Tell us a little about that, Lucy. Yeah, it is fascinating. Obviously, as you say, I mentioned Mike there and we were chatting this week and he was saying how equine vision and how horses see is something that's been discussed in eventing and eventing course design seminars and forums for a long, long time. Uh, I think British Eventing also had some research done with uh, with Exeter University into this. But it's really interesting as it, how it all ties together and particularly as back in, I mean, six eight weeks ago in january time i was at the listening in on the fei risk management eventing seminar where this was one of the big talking points and i mean it always is a big talking point in eventing about fence safety and horses reading fences right and color came up there as well as did ground lines background to fences horse, how horses read fences so i think there's a few points there really to me it's great research is happening and anything that can help horses do the job we're we're asking them to do is is a good thing and i also think it's really great that that it's being spelt out that it's being talked about and shouted about and that the public and the horse world is becoming sort of more aware of of the research that's going into this and why changes are happening and then it's not just an abstract concept it is as we're seeing all 40 race courses this year this is the results of of that um that research coming through into in an end point and hopefully helping to make all sports safer Mm, definitely it's something I was thinking about at the end of last year in the autumn um, after I had a stop with my horse across country and um, you know I spent a few days thinking I've been an idiot and ridden badly and I take my responsibility there for that that I think I could have ridden better but I thought a bit more about it and actually I realized that I've ridden my horse cross country I think 14 times around a proper full cross country course he's only ever had three stops two of them have been at exactly the same fence and the only time he's jumped that fence first time on a course he jumped it really badly and smacked the front of it. And I kind of just thought about that. And I thought there has to be something more going on here. It's not just that I'm not setting him up properly. And what I realized was that it was a spread fence and the flags were on the back side of the fence rather than on the leading edge, the takeoff side. And I remember something that Mark Phillips had written about this in one of his horse and hound columns a few years ago, where he said that because horses eyes are on the side of their heads and they draw that information from the sides and as they get closer, their vision changes as they come up to the fence and it can because they see the flags as, as they're an easy thing for them to pick out they can end up basically thinking that the back of the fence the landing side is the takeoff side so it can lead to them getting too close to the fence and either stopping as my horse did if maybe they're not confident and they realize last minute or having a bad jump and hitting the front of the fence as my horse did on the other occasion so just some things like that about where flags are positioned can can make a big difference to how horses view fences it's really interesting and mike was saying as well that it's not about you know sort of having multicolored cross-country courses or things like that but it's about how you use color and as you said things like flags double flagging came up at the eventing risk management forum as well on because of that because of how horses read fences and how fence decoration can be placed to make to help horses read fences better and which is what we all want isn't it so i i find it absolutely fascinating i could i could listen to people talking about it all day long yeah, it's very interesting. Double flagging, presumably meaning that you put flags on the front and back of the fence so yes. that both both sides are marked. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. Sorry, I was sort of jumping into jargon there. But yes, that's exactly what they mean. Mm. Uh, that's great, Lucy. Well, lots of interesting stuff there coming out of racing, feeding into eventing. And thank you to Becky and Eleanor for joining us today too.
So now we're going over to vet Helen Van Tool. Helen gave us some advice last winter about looking after hunters and she's back today to talk about roughing hunters off as the season comes to an end. Helen's practice, VT Vets, is based at Kirtlington outside Bicester and she hunts in that area and in Dorset. Over to you, Helen. So as we approach the end of the season, uh, we've obviously had a wonderful time and uh, we're looking forward to turning our horses out for a well-earned break over the summer. There's a lot of different techniques uh, to turn your horse away for the summer. I think the uh, slightly older fashion may be just to pull off the rugs at the end of March and stick it in the field. Um, I think nowadays we are kinder to our horses and I think we do a good job of letting them down. Normally we would walk them out for one to two weeks after the last day. This can be either just walker time or it can be a gentle hack but at walk only. Some horses respond better to others, not everybody has a walker. During this time they're having increased turnout. We're trying to adapt not just their guts to going back on a more grass-based feed, but we are also trying to let them know that it's the end of hunting and they're going to calm down and chill out and have more paddock time. You do actually have to decrease the feed during this time. If they stay on their fully fed hunting ration, they are not going to settle very well at turnout. So although you might appreciate that, you know, he's lost a bit of weight during the season and you might want to do some weight gaining, I think it's very important for those couple of weeks to decrease the feed because otherwise they won't settle out in the paddock and they'll just be charging around. Again, gradually you need to decrease the rugs. I'm not a big fan of them being pulled off straight away and turfed out. Uh, I remember my childhood driving around and seeing hunt horses all around the area standing freezing as we had a bit of mid-April snow and you could still vividly see their clip lines and they hadn't grown any hair yet. So slowly decrease rugs so maybe during the day they can stand in but any time they're out they should probably still have a turnout rug on and if it does get very cold and we do have snow I think they should stay rugged a little bit longer. Most hunters will have their shoes off during the summer. Um, I think it's important that when they see the ferry for the final time at the end of the season, not just that the shoes get pulled off, but they actually receive a trim at this time because human nature is they probably haven't been shod for six or seven weeks and we've eked out the end of the season on the last pair of shoes. And I think they do need to be trimmed when those shoes are pulled off before they get put in the paddock. Some horses that aren't blessed with great feet or great confirmation or we've been struggling with hoof cracks throughout the season, they do benefit from staying in a pair of front shoes throughout the summer to try and continue the improving that has been done throughout their winter shoeing. Um, I think it's also good to remember that they've got shoes on and therefore make sure that they do see the farrier every four, five, six weeks, depending on their regime. I do think they need their back shoes off because most hunters are turned out with others and it just creates extra drama if they kick each other and they've still got hind shoes on. Nowadays, the older hunters, you know, as modern medicine develops and we have the ability to keep old horses on the road for a longer period of time. Old hunters do benefit, I think, from staying up in light work for the summer. I feel that by the time the horses hit maybe around 15 years of age, turfing them out for three or four months unsupervised with no exercise allows the wheels to fall off. I think these horses benefit from staying shod and being ridden three or four times a week, even if it's just light hacking or even 10, 15 minutes on the lunge to just keep their strength up, keep their back muscles working and for you to keep an eye on them and see how they're looking. I think they age much more quickly if we just turf them out and that we can really benefit these older horses by just keeping them ticking over throughout the summer. Thank you, Helen. 
Next week, we'll be starting a new advice series with Trisha Nassau-Williams, who is an expert in lorinary, that is, bits and bridling. So we're looking forward to hearing from Trisha on that. Our interview will be with Italian event rider Vittoria Panazon. She talks about her Olympic experiences and much more. Plus, of course, we'll round up all the week's news as normal. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.